Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. The saying goes, it's not polite to talk about politics or religion. So for the rest of the episode, you're going to hear about both. While we have a clear division in this country between church and state, the way we vote is very much linked to our religious identity. A recent study from Pew Research found that whites who identify as Christians represent about two-thirds of all Republicans. Meanwhile, Americans unaffiliated with any religion and racial minorities who identify as Christians now each make up a bigger share of the Democratic coalition. But to me, it feels like the conversation surrounding religious voters, namely Christians, has felt one-dimensional. Evangelicals will support Trump no matter what, or black Christian voters will turn out for Democrats in high numbers no matter what. Now, while there's some truth to those generalizations, it's important to understand that religious voters are not a monolith. I wanted to understand, though, how we got to this point and how people of faith are balancing their religious beliefs with the messy realities of politics. There are thousands of religions and fitting them all into one episode is an impossible task. So for this episode, we're going to focus on some aspects of Christianity. A number of the 2020 Democratic candidates are using faith as a way to contrast themselves with the policies of the Trump administration. And for a party that associates itself with Christianity, to say that it is okay to suggest that God would smile on the division of families at the hands of federal agents, that God would condone putting children in cages, has lost all claim to ever use religious language. My mom taught Sunday school, and she taught me... She taught me, love your neighbor, no exceptions, and never let someone pull you so low that you hate them. So I'm not going to let Donald Trump contort my soul. What it is for me is the importance of the lessons we learn when we remember our values, when we remember our faith. Still, we know that President Trump has a deep well of support among white evangelical voters. Democrats have also waged an unrelenting assault against people of faith. Take care of the people God put into your life. Have a great life and love your country and love your God. In America, we don't worship government. We worship God. This, even though he's demonstrated a lack of familiarity with the Bible. Two Corinthians, right? Two Corinthians, 317. That's the whole ballgame. And many evangelicals chafe at his coarse language, especially his taking the Lord's name in vain. But should we assume evangelicals stick with Trump in 2020? And if Democrats have a chance to win over Christian or white evangelical Christian voters, do they need to look at what they got wrong in 2016? Helping us dig into all of this is Emma Green, staff writer at The Atlantic magazine, covering politics, policy and religion. I started by asking Emma about how we'd gotten to this point where whites who identify as Christian represent two-thirds of all Republicans, but just a quarter of Democrats. It's perhaps the sharpest example of this sorting that we've been seeing across political partisan lines for years, where essentially the two parties no longer just have policy differences on taxes or the size of government. They essentially represent two different worldviews, and they have self-consciously played into messages around those worldviews, playing up moral issues, cultural issues, issues that have typically been in that religious sphere. And so what we've seen is 
this self-sorting where people who identify as Christians and particularly from a conservative theological background find themselves identifying in this deep, visceral identity way with the Republican Party. And on the Democratic side, you know, obviously there's a long history of Christianity and Christian voters and religious voters being a big part of the Democratic base. Black Christians, for example, are mm-hmm. a huge component of uh, the Democratic base. But you also have a large portion of the growing segment of Americans who are not religious, not religiously affiliated, saying, I can't be in that Republican Party. I guess I'm a Democrat. The things that they're saying about separation of church and state, about abortion, about gay rights, those resonate with me intuitively, again, on that level of deep identity. Well, that's what I really want to get to is that question of the difference between identity and faith. You know, I think it depends on the kind of voter you're talking about. Mm. So in my reporting, I have encountered a lot of people who say that, for example, abortion is their single issue. They are very strong pro-life voters, for example. And for them, everything else has to take a back seat to what they see as the biggest political crisis of our time. They're going to vote based on promises around judges, promises around the way that federal and state legislation will be handled. So for those voters, you could say as Catholics, as evangelicals, whoever they may be, that set of teachings, that set of beliefs really dictates how they're acting politically. But I think for a large segment of Americans, these other ambient signals about what it means to be a Republican and what it means to be a Democrat and how that fits with how they imagine themselves as a person of faith are really, really powerful signaling devices. Mm. And I think we've gotten to a place where the Democrats and the Republicans more or less have to face off over these two Gulf worldviews. There's a huge gulf between them where people who are of faith kind of see themselves fitting in with generally the suite of Republican views. And then others who maybe have a more progressive faith or no faith at all see themselves more cleanly aligning with a democratic worldview. Can you help us understand the ways in which Democrats are trying to sort of bridge this religion gap? You know, people in my world who think a lot about the role of religion in politics, they look at this moment from the 2016 election and many of the decisions that the Clinton campaign made around religious voters, and they see that as the fatal decision of her campaign. She's a person who comes from a pretty deep and apparently quite sincere religious background. She grew up as a Methodist. She used to keep a Bible on her kitchen table during the impeachment years of her husband's administration. And yet she totally played down this aspect of herself and did not build up the infrastructure needed to reach voters on these kinds of religious lines. And I do think that at least some of the primary contenders now in the Democratic primary have taken a lesson from Hillary Clinton's mistakes. And we see this in a couple of different ways. The most powerful is in rhetoric. You have candidates from Cory Booker to Elizabeth Warren to Pete Buttigieg quoting from the Bible and talking about their favorite passages and how they see these messages aligning with their view of how politics should work. 
And we also see it on an infrastructure level, more seriously trying to engage with religious voters who are going to be important in those early primary states, Iowa, New Hampshire, especially South Carolina, but also keeping an eye towards that general election, knowing that when we get out of this bloody war over the Democratic nominee and who it's going to be, there is going to be a really big task at hand for the Democratic nominee, which is trying to reach those voters in the states that flipped and went to Trump in 2016 that Hillary Clinton thought she had in the bag. Would it do Democrats really much good to try to reach out to voters who seem to have absolutely no interest in leaving the party or leaving Trump? People who are all in for Trump in his base, super conservative white evangelicals, are not going to be smart targets for the Democrats in 2020. But that leaves a whole lot of other religious Mm. people in the United States for them to go after. You have white mainline Protestants who dominate the religious cultures of states like Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin, these states that also, not coincidentally, end up on our list of potential swings that could be really, really important for that general election. You have Catholics, not just white Catholics, but Latino Catholics. And the question is, will these voters, who have often been split across the parties, be inspired and mobilized to try to join along with that Democratic candidate, seeing somebody who they can resonate with? Even though, for example, black Christians vote for Democrats in the high percentage, 90 percentage, something like that, it's really important to have those voters feel like they want to go to the polls on election day, that they don't continue to be cynical and feel that they've been left behind by the Democratic Party. So the president has reaffirmed his support for Israel since before he was elected. He's moved the U.S. embassy. He's supportive of Netanyahu. Has that helped him with Jewish voters? In terms of raw vote percentages, Trump's rhetoric has absolutely not worked for swinging some segment of the Jewish population to support his administration. In fact, I would say the opposite. I have seen Mm. activism from Jews, not just really progressive Jews, but really all across the spectrum of people who feel compelled to go out to protests, to write open letters to their newspapers, to say Trump's rhetoric on immigrants and on the stranger and on the other really don't sit well with us. They alienate us as Jews in a fundamental way. And I think when it comes down to Jewish voters and potentially to other minority religious groups in America, the question is less about how many people is the current administration going to swing to their column. It's what kinds of donors are they able to court? What kinds of influence are they able to uh, capture in terms of people writing op-eds and support? And also, who are the other people who are watching what they're saying? So, for example, on Trump's Israel policy, I would argue that he is making as much of a pitch to evangelical Christians as he is yes. to American Jews. Democrats' support for other religious groups, specifically support for Muslims, do you think that also has an impact or there's a worry that that some Democrats have, that that has an impact on the way white Christians view the Democratic Party? You know, I can't recall a single conversation I've had with a Democratic politician or operative or strategist or commentator who has considered taking a softer approach to support for the American Muslim community out of fear that they'll alienate 
uh, white Christian voters or Republican voters because I do think that the Democrats see that as a kind of baseline issue mm-hmm. that Trump's policies on people coming from majority Muslim countries was out of bounds, that his rhetoric on Muslims and Islam hating us, hating America, has been out of bounds. And I don't think that they see that as negotiable. I do wonder what kind of priority those issues will take, especially as we move into this general cycle, how much of that rhetoric you'll see centered in what the Democrats say about who they are and what the country should be. You know, in a funny way, from the beginning of the Trump administration, when Islamophobia and all of these policies having to do with Muslims were so much a center of the conversation and such a part of the fear that Muslims and others had about what Trump would bring, that's actually kind of decelerated in Mm. the past two and a half years. And as we've been watching watching these early primary debates, I haven't heard a whole lot of messaging that's specifically been designed to say, hey, American Muslims, we're with you, and other Democrats who also want to support you, you should know that we're the party that's going to stand up for those religious minorities. Emma Green, thank you so much for coming and talking with me about this. I really appreciate you having me on. Emma Green is a staff writer at The Atlantic magazine covering politics, policy, and religion. When it comes to the battle for the Democratic nomination, Iowa is getting the lion's share of media attention. Which makes sense, since it kicks off primary season voting on February 3rd. But Iowa and New Hampshire, which votes a week later, are racially monolithic. About 90 percent of the electorate is white. It's not until February 22nd, when Nevada holds its caucus, and then February 29th, when South Carolina holds its primary, that the electorate gets more diverse. In 2016, Black voters made up more than 60 percent of the Democratic electorate in South Carolina. And reaching Black voters in that state often means visiting Black churches and doing outreach to their congregations. I sat down with Joe Darby, the senior pastor of Nichols Chapel AME Church in Charleston, to discuss the role that religion plays in the Democratic primary in his state. African-American voters of faith tend to be conservative on some things, but progressive on others. That goes back to the civil rights movement, I think. I think that combines with the fact that the Republican Party has done zero to attract African-American voters, except for some shameless pandering by a handful of folks who consider themselves to be the Christian right, but who are neither Christian nor right. For most black voters, voters of faith as well, there is really no choice between the parties. Do you feel as if Democrats have taken that vote for granted in the past? And if so, do you feel as they are doing so again this year? They've done that in the past. Um, There have been flashes of light uh, during the Obama campaign, both campaigns. They worked the African-American community wonderfully. Um, They were in tune. They were visible. They made the appeal. Uh, Democratic Party sometimes gets that wrong. And I've seen that happen in South Carolina, where you don't see anybody, you don't hear from anybody. They don't do the boots on the ground things. And then two weeks before the election, they'll do polling and then start making frantic calls saying, help us get the people out. And I would hope they don't do that this time. I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about your faith and how that guides you as you think about politics? Well, I'm born and bred in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, Our church has a legacy 
of social advocacy is probably one of the few denominations that mm-hmm. came into being not because of a theological or doctrinal difference, but as a protest against racism in 1787 mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. black worshipers were pulled from their knees at St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia and walked out and established Mother Bethel AME Church. So that's a part of what shapes me. Um, I'm very much a product of the 80s theologically when Jim Cohn and some contemporary theologians were shaping liberation theology. So I very much believe that God most readily identifies with and is present with the oppressed and that we are to be our brothers and sisters keepers, that we are to fight for freedom and justice as a product of an African American church, historically African American church. Um, that's a part of the DNA of the church. Um, during the 60s, that was a clergy-led movement, I think, for a good reason, not only divine intervention, but because clergy were paid by black folk. And so mm-hmm. they weren't fired for standing up for what was right. So all of that is a piece of me. I'm fourth generation. How often does the issue of politics come up with your congregants? As you said, you've, you've got folks now who are running for president coming into the church. So how, how do you balance those two things? Well, politics kind of interweaves, especially in the age of Trump. Um, mm. It's hard to avoid. So that discussion comes up. If candidates do come to visit, I've got a pretty standard rule. You don't do a drive-by. You have to come in time for worship. You stay through the worship service. When we acknowledge other visitors, we will acknowledge you, give you about five minutes to say your space, say your bit, and and you can hang around and greet people after church as well. So what do you see going on in South Carolina right now in terms of how these candidates are, I don't know, how they're shaping up? Biden is holding his own quite nicely. Um, mm-hmm. Still got a lion's share of the African-American vote. Um, I think that's owing not only to the fact that he was vice president to President Obama, but I think it's because he has long and deep ties in South Carolina. He's a known quantity, and he's seen as by a lot of folk as the best chance to to defeat Donald Trump. And that's the priority for folks. Uh, you know, a lot of people do care about the policies and things that are being put forth by the candidates. You've got a fairly informed electorate. But the main thing that people talk about is we got to get Donald Trump out of the White House. And so it's almost as if the House is on fire nationally. And It'd be nice to talk about decorating the house and what you're going to put into the house, but first you got to put out the fire. And a lot of folks see Joe Biden as the person to put out the fire, but he has some solid support. I think um, Kamala Harris has some solid support, even though it's not showing in the polls, but she's very well thought of down here as well. There's another candidate who gets a lot of uh, at least national media attention. That's Pete Buttigieg. And the big question mark over him right now is whether or not he will be able to expand support within the African-American community right now. He doesn't have much, if any, support. How do you see him playing in South Carolina and with your, with, with you, with your congregation? I think it's going to be interesting to see how he does in South Carolina. Um, on the one hand, he has a compelling message, mm-hmm. and he probably does a better job of framing his faith than any other candidate, actually. That comes against the backdrop of the fact that he's a mayor of a small town, that a lot of folk are leery of that. 
mm-hmm. uh, that he's got a spotty record in that small town when it comes to being assertive and progressive on the issues of race, even though his Marshall plan looks good. And the gorilla in the room, quite frankly, is, you know, the LGBT issue. Mm-hmm. A lot of black voters still are conservative about that. Some of them will not articulate that, but they'll articulate it at the polls. Yeah. So that that's still when we talk about Buttigieg and his challenges, being gay is, you think, one of the bigger hurdles for him. I don't know if it's a bigger hurdle, but it it, it would be a hurdle for some folks. You know, it's, it's sad to say, but but that's a reality. I've seen it. I've heard it. I've heard what some of my colleagues have said. We still have a ways to go in making progress. How important do you think it is for Democrats to be able to have a message about their faith or about religion as a way to connect with other voters who are voters of faith? I think it's critically important. And I think the Democratic Party needs to do a little bit better job of that. The party is a big tent, but faith is a piece of that tent. And if you don't reach out to those voters, if you don't identify with those voters, then sometimes it's harder to energize those voters. So, you know, I think the party needs to do that. Um, The Republican Party, well, I don't know what they're doing now because what they're practicing isn't exactly faith, but they mobilize white evangelicals. And I think... Democratic Party should be just as aggressive in mobilizing people of faith and not downplay that. Reverend Darby, I really appreciate you taking the time and talking with me. Glad to. Now, despite some hesitancy to support him early in the 2016 campaign, white evangelical voters have become fervent supporters of President Trump. To understand how we got there, I went here. Farmersville, Texas is a small town northeast of Dallas, about an hour's drive. I usually tell people, whatever the words Farmersville, Texas conjure up in your mind, that's probably not far from the truth. That's Bart Barber, a pastor at First Baptist Church in Farmersville, Texas, where his congregation includes about 300 members. I asked Pastor Barber about President Trump and how he and other evangelicals balance the president's character with their own faith and policies. It's a difficult time in American politics. I I think maybe the phrase that shapes our politics more than any other, it may not be repeated that much, but I think it's on a lot of people's minds, is the idea of you don't belong here. And uh, I think there are three or four contexts where that applies. I I think there's a myth of the idea that, that white evangelicals or evangelicals in general have sworn some sort of a blind loyalty blood oath to the Republican Party. Uh, believe it or not, I grew up a Democrat. I entered young adult. My dad worked for Bill Clinton. I grew up in, uh, in Arkansas as a Democrat and launched into adulthood believing that uh, Jesus saves and that the Democratic Party is the party of the common American. And somewhere along the way, we moved from that, from from Bill Clinton to Hillary Clinton, uh, talking about a basket of deplorables, um, the the idea that there are people in common America who really don't belong, shouldn't fit in, uh, up to now Beto O'Rourke talking about churches where if your theology of marriage is more than 15 minutes old, uh, you know, he sounds very much like James I of England, who was going to harry evangelicals out of the land, that we're just going to 
chase you away because you don't belong here. And so, you know, on the one hand, that the, the big conversation among white evangelicals that really, you know, when we're in the room by ourselves, really animates discussion is, is it okay to vote third party? Uh, because there are a lot of white evangelicals who uh, aren't really comfortable with necessarily the tone of things in the Republican Party, but who feel like there's nowhere else to go because it's the choice between that and a party who uh, is uh, in the Democratic Party is, is animated sometimes by talk of just how we don't belong here. And yet on the other side of things, the very experience of that gives me some compassion and sympathy for black evangelicals, brothers and sisters of mine, who sometimes feel like it's the Republican Party who's saying that they don't belong here. And they, uh, they can cite some evidence for why they feel that way. And then Hispanic evangelical brothers and sisters who really can cite evidence uh, for times that the Republican Party seems to be saying that they don't belong here, or that other refugees and immigrants who've come here legally aren't, aren't somehow legitimate uh, members of this society. Uh, and uh, just makes me realize that it's a, a very fractured existence that we have politically in America today where a lot of people are motivated by this sense that someone's out to, to get them and, uh, to, and, to, and to chase them out of significant participation in public life. As you are thinking about the 2020 election, I want to go back for a moment to 2016. Were you supportive of President Trump as a candidate? I actually was in 2016 a never Trumper. Um, mm-hmm. I at that point uh, I voted third party uh, again for the reasons I said earlier. Uh, didn't didn't believe that I could legitimately uh, vote for Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump was not my choice in the primaries. Uh, the president uh, was not the choice in the primaries of many of the people that I knew in my congregation or here in Texas. Uh, but once he became the Republican Party nominee the preponderance of my church members, uh, to my knowledge, uh, voted for uh, the president in the 2016 election, uh, but I did not. And what are you thinking about going forward? Well, uh, I'm open to voting for the president in 2020. We've seen some candidates who are really leaning into their, their own personal faith journey. Joe Biden, and his Catholicism and how faith has sort of sustained him through a lot of tragedy. We have Pete Buttigieg, who also has been very outspoken on on his faith and um, the role it plays for him. And I'm wondering if those sorts of candidates could appeal to either you or people that you know, people in your congregation, who want to find someone who either puts an emphasis on faith or, to the point you made earlier, doesn't say you don't belong here to you all because you have a different set of beliefs than I do. I think that really President Trump and Joe Biden or Mayor Pete, um, either one, uh, illustrate that, uh, that that I think for most of the members of my congregation, uh, they, they love for people to be people of faith, but what they're looking for the government to do is give reassurance that we'll be free to exercise ours. What would reassure me would be to hear someone say, 
offer a full-throated defense of the idea of religious liberty for everyone. Uh, any candidate who could do that and who could say that forcefully and enthusiastically uh, would, would certainly gain my attention. With regard to my congregation, I think I can say uh, safely, uh, because Collin County is a very red county uh, in Texas, which is a red state, uh, that most of them never have the moment, uh, I can't say that I've ever had the moment, that I've thought, which Democratic candidate would I vote for? Uh, because the ship has sailed so far, and there's so much need, I think, for even as a former Democrat, I would say there's so much need for the party to restore some level of trust there to make us think I could consider whether there was a Democratic candidate I could vote for. Barb Barber is a pastor at First Baptist Church in Farmersville, Texas. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot has been made about the almost monolithic support President Trump has among white evangelical Christians. But not everyone thinks it's impenetrable to the Democratic Party. After 2016, Doug Padgett and a number of religious leaders founded the group Vote Common Good to encourage evangelicals to connect with Democratic candidates. I sat down with Doug to hear about what he's learned in his outreach. Forty years ago... California was a ruby red state for the Republicans, and the Democratic president was an evangelical from Georgia named Jimmy Carter. So the situation that the religious right is Republican in this country uh, has not been a permanent state of affairs and uh, doesn't need to stay that way. But for a lot of people's lived experience, they just didn't have much personal interaction with Democrats. So our showing up in their town, running an event in a church parking lot or doing an event inside of a building or out in a public park park was a chance for them to be invited into the political process in a safe way that they never would have considered approaching it before. It shouldn't seem newsworthy that evangelicals want to ask evangelicals to vote for a Democrat. It's true, but it's also interesting that this isn't a new phenomenon, white evangelicals supporting Republicans. It's been pretty consistent. The real question in 2016 was, well, just how solid is that evangelical support for Republicans when they nominate a candidate who has broken with many tenets of the church, certainly in his personal life and his past stances, even on some policy issues? And I think for a lot of voters, when they saw that the evangelical community voted overwhelmingly with Trump, just as they had for George W. Bush or for John McCain and others— there's a sense that maybe this is less about faith and more about partisanship. So can you talk about that? With Donald Trump being so clearly not like these voters, right? He's so different from them. What we learned was voters don't need you to be like them for them to vote for you. But voters do want you to like them if you're going to ask them to vote for you. And one of the things that we heard over and over in many different ways of people saying it was, 
well, I know Donald Trump isn't like us, but I think he's going to take care of us. I think he likes us. I think he thinks about the things that matter to us, and he knows that they matter to us. And they also felt that with the Democratic Party and with Hillary Clinton specifically, that she didn't like them. And that's something that we work with candidates on and we try to work in the messaging is to help people understand that you don't have to be like a voter, but you do have to like them and to authentically engage in knowing and understanding these voters. So there's a lot of work to do to bridge this gap of how voters feel about how the Democratic Party feels about them. Now, that's in addition to all the policy differences. But look, most people, they don't vote based on policies. They vote based on their sense of identity and who they are. And most people don't think about politics. They don't even know how it works. How much is this question of, well, we might not have agreed with Donald Trump, but we did feel that he looked out for us or he's not really like us, but he understands our challenges and our values. How much of that do you think was, and and that Democrats don't, how much of that do you think was about the fact that the Democrats' agenda in many ways does reflect a certain value set that they also disagree with, right? And if you're talking about anything from cultural issues or social issues, but also just, again, where the emphasis is. It's Mm -hmm. on immigrant rights. It's on a Green New Deal. It's on expanding government's role in health care. That's what they're responding to more than anything, more than speaking to them on the issue of their faith. The policies are not actually on the Republican side, and this is why the religious right works so hard to make it feel like it's an identity because they don't actually have the policies on their side. Many Christian voters, if you just ask them what they think about issues, they will be on the side of inclusion and of kindness and of gentleness and of love. They won't want to see themselves on the side of some sort of, you know, only exchanges that have a financial benefit to them, or let's be sure we keep people out, or let's live in fear. What's happening is those are being translated into political issues, I think, deeper around an identity than they are around the particular policies. So part of what I think Democrats need to do, and also advocacy groups like ours, one of the reasons that Vote Common Good exists is that we want to champion these storylines because politicians can't say everything. In fact, people don't tend to listen to politicians uh, when they're talking about if they like you or not. So what we're trying to do is to say the policies are across the Republican and Democratic platforms, none of them align ideally with anyone's faith. And I heard Donald Trump say just a few weeks ago at the Values Voter Summit, which is the religious rights gathering in Washington, D.C. And that evening, Donald Trump said to the voters or to the people there, they said, look, the Democrats don't like me. That's why they're trying to impeach me. But even more importantly, they don't like you. That's why they're trying to impeach me, because I stand with you. And he's literally standing in the room with them saying, I stand with you. And that is something that is a message that that connects, even if it's not true that Democrats don't stand with religious people. And I just think it would be ideal if the Democratic Party and Democratic movements of politics wouldn't exclude religious people or ask them to keep quiet about their religious motivations. And I don't think most people want it to be that way, but it really has defaulted that way for a lot of voters and for a lot of politicians. Although when we talk about religious people, you're right, the image that comes first is white evangelicals, their support for Donald Trump. But 
a core constituency for Democrats are black evangelicals and black voters of faith who are as reliably Democratic as white evangelicals are reliably Republican. So can you talk about that difference there? Because, again, it seems like we're back to this issue of identity, right? That's right. That's part of the reason that I recognize, and so many of us have, that it's not just the policy issue and the faith that you hold because black evangelicals and black charismatic churches tend to support democratic politicians. So it's not that. It's not just the policy and the faith. So what is it? And if we're going to respond to that question, that gets thorny, right? It's it, Now all of a sudden you're talking about, about white racism, you're talking about white supremacy narratives, and you're talking about uh, the laws that we have, and now you're getting into something. And I hope that the election of Donald Trump and movements like ours will cause all of us to have to say – we cannot get away from the race narrative in this country because so many of our political and social and identity issues have been so harmed by white supremacy and the racism that comes from it. We have to respond to this. Doug Padgett, thanks so much for coming in and talking with me today. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. Doug Padgett is executive director of Vote Common Good. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Washington has been consumed with impeachment this week. On Monday, we saw the release of the first transcripts from several witness depositions. Bill Taylor says to Gordon Sondland, I think it would be crazy to withhold military aid for the purposes of a political campaign. Morrison also contradicted other testimony. Gordon Sondland very recently revised in a significant way the testimony that he gave to the House. Investigations Biden-Clinton. Those are the key words George Kent says the president wanted Ukraine's leader to say into a microphone. And then on Wednesday, Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, announced that the first public hearings would take place in a week on Wednesday, November 13th. Those open hearings will be an opportunity for the American people to evaluate the witnesses for themselves, to make their own determinations about the credibility of the witnesses, but also to learn firsthand about the facts of the president's misconduct. Well, at least some people are interested. Others, not so much. I'm not going to read these transcripts. The whole process is a joke. I'm joined now by Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria, who represents the 2nd Congressional District of Virginia. Congresswoman, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. In talking about these hearings that are going to start next Wednesday, a lot of Republicans are saying this is just nothing but a show trial. Democrats have already made up their minds that they want to impeach the president. How important are these public hearings going to be for you as a member of Congress in deciding how to vote on impeachment? I think they're incredibly important, um, not just for us as members of Congress, but for the American public to see and hear and understand firsthand uh, the testimony uh, from these individuals, all of whom are longtime public servants who've served our country in various capacities, and to see the credibility of the statements that they make and understand the seriousness of these offenses on uh, the part of the president. Now, we've been hearing from some Republicans who say, well, unless or until there's a direct line linking the president himself to making statements 
about this issue, about either holding up aid or demanding that there's public discussion of an investigation into the Bidens, that you cannot hold the president accountable. Well, we've seen the transcript of the call, and he's admitted that he had this conversation with President Zelensky, and uh, it's been pretty clear to me. Uh, Both the president um, and his personal lawyer, uh, Giuliani, have stated that they made this call, and the words are in there. Do me a favor. Um, So I I really don't know what additional tie people might need, uh, but I think that, you know, during this testimony, there'll be corroborating statements from witnesses who are familiar with the situation, um, who can reiterate over and over again that, that these statements were made on the call and this was the intent of the, the request by the, the president from, um, you know, the, the leader of Ukraine. We know we're talking a lot about this issue and how it might play politically. We had some local uh, elections on Tuesday some of them in your state of Virginia. There were legislative elections in and, and uh, districts in and around your congressional districts, state legislative districts, actually flipped from Republican to Democrat. Can you talk about the role that impeachment and this discussion nationally may have had in these races? Well, definitely. And I think it started before this year. Um, All eyes were on Virginia in 2017 when we flipped 15 seats in the House of Delegates. And then this year in 2019, it was truly the only state house across the country that uh, was prone to flip. And that was two seats in both the Senate and the the House of Delegates that were up for grabs. Um, And we did better than that, uh, especially in the House of Delegates. But, you know, I think that originally in 2017, it was a referendum. Um, on this administration. And and this time around, again, it was a a referendum on the administration and on the impeachment inquiry. And, you know, people want uh, people with their values at all levels of government. So federal, state, local. And I think that that was very clear in the results of of the Virginia elections that we saw. So are you saying that they made that voters in those legislative districts didn't make a determination about impeachment, that they support impeachment by voting for a Democrat? Well, I can tell you what I see in my district. Mm-hmm. I had a town hall last night in, in Williamsburg, Virginia, and had just under 200 people present. Um, and I had one woman who was very vocal um, about her disdain for the process and very vocal, yelling um, on, the, you know, trying to yell over me during the event. Um, and, you know, each time I came back very clearly with my stance that I think that the president of the United States has abused his power of office um, to, you know, gain political dirt on his opponent um, and to withhold aid from a, a foreign partner. Um, the audience gave resounding applause. Um, so I would say that, you know, within the room, there might have been one dissenter and, and everyone else um truly seem to be in line uh, with uh, the assertions I was making about the importance of moving forward with an impeachment inquiry. And are you hearing this around your district? Or was this just one instance? I mean, are you getting calls and emails coming fast and furious into your offices? We get a lot of calls in the first uh, few days after my coming out in favor of an impeachment inquiry. I would say that about 65% of the calls were um, in favor of my decision. And the calls have continued to come in on on both sides of the issue. Uh, But my feeling on the ground from talking to constituents is that people strongly support um, the decision I've made. um, And they understand the gravity of this for our country. Do you think there's any chance that the House will choose not to impeach the president? Or are we on the road to an ultimate impeachment vote? I believe we're on that path and that this next step in the process to have the public hearings will just reemphasize the gravity of this situation, put the 
evidence out there directly uh, for the American people to see um, and that we will be moving towards um, articles of impeachment, a vote um, before the end of the year, roughly. And we can assume that at this point you were leaning towards supporting that. I am. Um, I've seen a lot that convinces me in that direction. And um, if, you know, the evidence that comes out continues to follow um, in line with what I've seen, um, you know, I, I believe that I will support the, those articles. Congresswoman Elaine Luria, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. Congresswoman Elaine Luria represents the 2nd Congressional District of Virginia. And here's one more thing for me. As if enough hasn't happened this week, on Thursday night we learned that former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is going to join the crowded field of Democrats running for president. Bloomberg has been thinking about running for president for a while, but his decision to jump in now seems to be based on increasing concern by him and many in the Democratic establishment that Joe Biden can't win the nomination, but that an Elizabeth Warren nomination would mean Trump is re-elected. I'm skeptical, however, that Bloomberg can fill the electability gap that many Democrats say they're worried about. First, while it's true Biden doesn't look as imposing as he did when he first entered the contest, he does have relationships with voters and activists that he's earned over decades of political service and campaigning. Bloomberg doesn't have that kind of grassroots support. His advocacy on issues like gun control and the environment will be welcomed by many Democrats, but his support for New York's controversial stop-and-frisk program will not be. And at a time when Democratic voters have become more skeptical of big money politics and Wall Street, a billionaire New Yorker is, to say the least, an uncomfortable fit. We don't know where this goes, but we do know that Bloomberg's opponents will have a chance to address his candidacy and their own in just a couple of weeks at the November 20th Democratic debate. This week's show was produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob. Engineering and sound design by Jay Cowett. David Gable is our administrative assistant and our executive producer is Deirdre Debke. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. Also, if you missed anything and you want to listen back, check out our podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts and leave us a rating while you're there. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.